Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor Responds videos. A few folks have asked me to respond to a gentleman named Kevin S. Hamilton of the Quorum of the Seventy in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He gave a BYU speech this year, 2023, I believe just a couple of weeks ago, on why a church. And so I've taken some excerpts of his talk, and I will respond to several of the points he gave. I'm going to break this up into two parts because he systematically builds up his case for the absolute necessity of the church as being the vehicle for Christ to be able to be effective in our lives. And he does so step-by-step step logically, and I don't want to skip any of those steps. So I've got quite a few slides. And let's take a look at what this gentleman has to say about the nature and the need of a church. But for a number of reasons, we need an organized. Oh, dear. For a number of reasons, we need an organized church, is what he said. So I say, okay, let's take a look at the reasons. It's a church. One that can deliver the blessings of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, this is interesting because he's saying the church brings the blessings of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And the atonement being of infinite power, if the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi is accurate, needs nothing to deliver it. It is an infinite atonement. So let's see what else this gentleman has. Addressing the topic of those who say they are spiritual but not religious, the Pew Research Center recently reported groups that exhibit the highest levels of traditional religious observance are most likely to say that they regularly experience a sense of spiritual peace. So, I mean, this has nothing to do with individual spirituality that I can see. And nearly two-thirds of religiously affiliated adults say they feel a deep sense of spiritual peace at least once a week. So my question becomes this, as I think about this Pew research, who was targeted in this Pew research? How many and from what countries? What nationalities? You see, without details, this means nothing, as I have no basis to compare. Why is a Pew research valid, for instance? How did they avoid bias in their research? 
What controls were in place? Who was it that asked the questions? And what exactly was asked and how was it asked? All of these make a gigantic difference in what answers come forth. And he is far, far too vague to give us any reassurance of any kind of validity. In Old Testament times, the church was generally centered on the family, and families ideally were presented over by, presided over by loving parents. Think of Adam and Eve or Lehi and Sariah with the father serving as the patriarch or spiritual leader. These families taught the gospel of Jesus Christ and helped one another stay true and faithful to God. There was no Mormon church in the Old Testament times. This is a classic failed Mormonizing of the scriptures. In New Testament times, Jesus Christ himself organized a church, even his church, as we read in Ephesians, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. In our day, the church of Jesus Christ has been organized again on the earth through the prophet Joseph Smith. And this appears to me to be proof texting of the New Testament because pretty much most of biblical scholarship now understands, based upon the enormous amounts of biblical manuscript evidence, textual criticism, form criticism, redactive criticism, etc., we have a pretty good view of the nature of the New Testament books and documents Jesus never did organize a church. But the Mormon leaders refuse to update. So let's see what else this gentleman has. So far, he's not doing real good. Who was called by God to do so. It was a restoration of the New Testament church, complete with apostles and prophets and with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. And this is false because there was no such thing as a New Testament church. But the question remains, why do we need a church? Why isn't it enough for me to simply worship God directly on a beach or a mountaintop? Why do I need the intermediary of a church? You may very well need a mediary, but I don't. Neither does anyone else who goes to God directly. The First Presidency teaches that Jesus Christ established his church to enable individuals and families to do the work of salvation and exaltation. Now, this has no basis in biblical reality since Jesus simply says, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, join my church. He said, come unto me, all ye who labor, and I shall give you rest. For instance, in Luke chapter 6, after choosing the 12 apostles, and this is not a church, he then heals the entire multitude, and it takes pains to say so. A great multitude from all Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon, and then he taught them what to do. And theirs is the kingdom of God, and their reward is great in heaven. Not once does he say, join my church for these glorious joys in heaven to be had. Church is never spoken of, yet there, if anywhere, is precisely where it would have been mentioned. In Luke chapter 7, the woman anoints Jesus' feet, and she bathes them with her tears and washes her, his feet with her own hair. And he says her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Just like that. He said to her, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. There is no church or priesthood, organization, or public shaming, or probationary waiting period, and bishop and state president interviews talked about here. There is no ordinances of baptism or eternal temple marriage or tithing mentioned here either for worthiness. There is Jesus, there are sins, and there is faith, and there is forgiveness given. Now, in the next chapter, Luke chapter 8, the woman touched him, and she felt like if she could just touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed, and sure enough, she was. By the virtue in him passing into her, and of course, Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? And she feared she had got caught, so she was begging for forgiveness. And Jesus said, daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. This is beautiful. Jesus didn't say, now that you've been healed, join my church to enable you to work towards salvation and exaltation. Oh, and pay your tithing so that you can be worthy to enter the temple. Further, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus didn't tell the five thousand people who were starving to join his church first and pay tithing and God will then give them blessings. He multiplied the bread and the fish and he fed them until they were stuffed to the gills. And he didn't tell them they had to be worthy first in order to take this sacrament either. In the next chapter, Luke chapter 10, when a lawyer a lawyer <laughs> asked Jesus, what does it take to have eternal life? Jesus asked, what is written in the law? He answered, well, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Did Jesus say, do thou this and join my church? I'll let you read that one for yourselves. I could easily add to this list of ideas here. The church of Jesus Christ is how we come to Christ. 
No, it's not. How we come to Christ is we go to Christ ourselves. We can think of the church using the analogy of a prescription drug capsule. The church is the capsule, and the atonement of Jesus Christ is the medicine delivered inside the capsule. The church delivers the blessings of the atonement of Christ to its members who are faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. The church delivers the atonement of Jesus Christ? This is nowhere in the Bible. Besides, pharmacy metaphors these days are not all that inspiring. Opioids come immediately to mind. They kill rather than heal, of course. But it's a good corporate analogy. It's just not my drug of choice. Through the ordinances and covenants made available by Jesus Christ through his church, we can bind ourselves or yoke ourselves or connect ourselves to him. Nope. He simply says, come unto me and I will give you rest. All of that other gobbledygook is man-made interpretations. A covenant is a sacred agreement between you and Heavenly Father with infinite love and desiring our greatest happiness. He sets the conditions for each covenant. If you accept and live the covenant, he will bless you. A covenant is meant to be binding, to create an everlasting connection. And that's not what he did in the New Testament at all. An ordinance, on the other hand, is a sacred physical act that shows God that you accept his covenant. It must be performed by someone with priesthood authority. For example, when you were baptized, you showed that you were willing to follow Jesus Christ and take upon yourself his name. At baptism, you entered in his path, and you continue on this straight and narrow path as you keep your baptismal covenants and make additional covenants in the house of the Lord and keep them. This is all Mormon speak. This is not taught in the Bible, nor is it taught in the Book of Mormon. He's trying to get you to think like a Mormon. These covenants guide your journey like signposts on a path. That's why we sometimes call it the covenant path. Returning to God is a process of receiving ordinances and making and keeping covenants with him. I don't buy it. It puts you between me and my maker as a leader of the church, and it puts the church between me and my maker. With an infinite atonement, as the Book of Mormon teaches, an infinite atonement of love also, 
I don't have any need for a church. When Moroni in the Book of Mormon says, Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, this is how we do it. We make and keep sacred covenants, and as we do so, we are drawn to him. We bind ourselves to him. We connect with him. These covenants are found in his church. They are delivered through priesthood ordinances. The Savior invites us to come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Yes. And that quote refutes everything you said about the necessity of church and covenants. He didn't say, come unto my church and make covenants in order to come unto me. He said, come unto me and take up my yoke, which is light. His yoke is easy, but the church's yoke is not. To the Old Testament prophet Enoch, he simply said, walk with me. In other words, I'll be with you on your journey. I am there for you. Yes, indeed. He said exactly nothing to Enoch like you have said. And yet Enoch literally became exalted. No covenants. No necessity of priesthood, no intermediate church, no sacrament, no baptism, no temple marriage, or any of that noise, no polygamy. Just walk with God. So if walking with God is good enough for Enoch, it's good enough for me. God's great purpose, his objective, what he calls his work and glory, is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of his children. Now, that's quite a statement. Immortality is to live forever with a resurrected physical body. Eternal life, or exaltation, is to become like God and live in his presence eternally as families. Immortality is a free gift. There are no conditions. Because of the atonement, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will all be resurrected and live forever. Eternal life, on the other hand, is a conditional gift. It is conditioned on making and keeping covenants with God. Enoch entirely, 100% refutes this man-made distinction between immortality and eternal life. Eternal life is promised to all those who believe in him. In fact, let's take a look at the Greek, shall we? John 3, 15, that everyone believing in him may have life eternal. The Greek is zoen aeonion, eternal life. And then when we go to 
John 10, verse 28. And I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish. Kago dido mi aftois zoin eonion. Now, this Greek word is very interesting. We look in Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, page 373 in the Greek, for the word eternal, aeon, aeonios, this predominant meaning of aeonios, that in which it is used everywhere in the New Testament, may be seen in 2 Corinthians 4.18, where it is said in contrast with proskairos, literally for a season. And in Philemon 15, where only in the New Testament it is used without a noun. Moreover, it is used of persons and things which are in their nature endless, God, his power, his glory, the Holy Spirit, things like that. It is used of the redemption affected by Christ and of the consequent salvation of men, as well as of his future rule. And it's everywhere declared to be without end. Luke one thirty three is used of the life received by those who believe in Christ, John 3.16, concerning whom he said, they shall never perish. In 10.28, and it's used of the resurrection body in 2 Corinthians 5.1, elsewhere said to be immortal. 1 Corinthians 15.53, in fact, in which that life will finally be realized. There is none of this man-made separating of doctrine between immortality and eternal life. That's Joseph Smithism. The Greek gives us a much more proper contextual view. Eternal life or exaltation, as Joseph Smith referred to it, is our ultimate destiny, not just to return to live with God, but ultimately to become like Him. As we make and keep sacred covenants received by priesthood ordinances like baptism, confirmation, and temple ordinances, we gradually put off the natural man and progress through the eternities until ultimately we become even as He is. These covenants and ordinances are only found in his church. And this is Joseph Smithism that he is teaching here. Jesus simply said, walk with me. Come unto me, ye who are labored with heavy labor, and I will give you rest. And accept him. He didn't say anything about joining a church. Just last week, in this very devotional setting, Elder Neil L. Anderson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said, we need ordinances and covenants. We remember and renew each week as we take the sacrament. Our faith grows and develops as we regularly and conscientiously work to build our discipleship with others who are as committed as we are. End of quote. This 
is the plan of our Heavenly Father for His children, to help them realize their full divine potential. This is how we come to Christ. This is how we enter and stay on the covenant pathway. The church of Jesus Christ enables us to come to Christ. <laughs> this is not at all mentioned in the New Testament or described that way. All this added by Joseph Smith to give church power over us, to be our Savior, as it were, instead of Jesus. Covenant pathway, that is nowhere taught by Jesus in the Bible or the Book of Mormon, as far as that goes. This is modern-day Mormon jingoism we're experiencing and seeing here. The church does not bring us to Christ. Our own hearts do that. His church exists so that he can accomplish his objective, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of his children. No. It is Jesus who does this through his infinite atonement, not a church. The church was not crucified for us. Jesus was. The church did not create us. Jesus did. The church cannot save us. Jesus can. They want to give the church the same power as Jesus. It's just asinine. About you, we're grateful for your faith and goodness. And furthermore, your Heavenly Father and your Savior, Jesus Christ, love you with a perfect, even infinite love. They don't comprehend infinite love or infinite atonement. That covers all shortcomings, contingencies, losses, failures, deaths. Nothing can be outside the infinite since it is totality. To me, this is precisely why the church is superfluous. It's not necessary. We have an infinite atonement through infinite love. Could I share just a few observations with you? These are a few things that I have observed personally as I have traveled around the church and as I meet with members of the church. My first observation, I have heard some that would try to decouple or disconnect Jesus Christ from his church and his apostles by saying things like, I follow Jesus, not the church, or I follow the Savior, not the apostles. To those who say this, I would simply say, it's not possible. You cannot accept Jesus Christ and reject his. You cannot accept Jesus Christ and accept his church. Yes, you most certainly can. This is the church trying to become your mediator. 
Since it is not infinite, everything and everyone is inferior and lesser than Jesus's infinite atonement. This church or his authorized messengers, you cannot separate Jesus Christ from the church of Jesus Christ. He taught this to the Nephites in the Book of Mormon. Quote, Blessed are ye, if ye shall give heed unto the words of these twelve, whom I have chosen to minister unto you and to be your servants. This is the Nephite account of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous sermons in the Bible. Yet in the Book of Mormon version, Christ adds a very clear teaching emphasizing the role of the twelve to make sure the Nephites know to whom they should look. It's simply not possible to completely follow the Savior without following his church. You cannot come to Christ without coming to his church, and you cannot come to his church without accepting his prophets. The twelve are always inferior to the one and only infinite atoning, infinite loving Jesus Christ. This argument attempts to equate in importance and power the church and its leaders with Jesus. I don't buy it. Jesus is entirely possible to follow without any man-made church. And I'll stop there with this part one. Thanks for watching. My Backyard Professor Responds. I will return shortly, probably tomorrow or the next day, with part two, wrapping up how Mormonism continually tries to convince us that everything in the church is just as equally valid and as important as Jesus Christ's infinite atonement, and that we need the church in order to get to Jesus, which is not taught anywhere in the Bible, but it's always found in Joseph Smith's own revelations. Interesting, that, isn't it? I'll see you next time.